Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Gigamon and Gigamon's Mark Jowl will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about how Gigamon is positioning itself as a data source for security teams and products. Uh, there's been this real bifurcation of the network security market. It seems to be breaking down into companies that do collection and other companies that do the analysis part on the collected data. Uh, so that is interesting stuff and it is coming up after this week's news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, we have like one of the shortest run sheets in recent memory this week thanks to a long weekend in the United States and just not much uh, all that much happening Uh, but we've got some really really good interesting stuff to get through this week as well so I'm kind of glad we're going to have time to talk through these things in detail and the first thing I want to talk about is a blog post from Okta that has announced that some of its customers have been owned in an interesting way and yeah, look, let's just start with that. What exactly is Okta telling us all here? Uh, so a campaign uh, went across some of their customers that was seeking to compromise the super admin account uh, of their Okta tenancy. So many big customers uh, use Okta for auth. And this was a case where someone had either gained access to passwords or or had some other mechanism of, of understanding the layout of these customers. And then they social engineered the customer's in-house IT team to uh, password reset like the multi-factor auth token for the super admin user uh, inside the Okta tenancy. Uh, so at that point, they've got full control of the Okta and you you could imagine that they can you know change some MFA settings, remove MFA and so on and so forth, which like so far kind of so ordinary. Um, you know, well, I mean, people... yes, except should your help desk really be resetting MFA for the super admin account? And uh, the answer to that is no. No, yeah, it should correct. not be able to do that. Yes. <laughs> they should not be able to do that. Or at least it should <laughs> raise some alarm bells when they do. Yeah. Um, and so, like, yeah, that part, interesting, but kind of normal, I suppose. Uh, where it gets really interesting, though, is the post-intrusion activity in Okta, where the attackers get into the Okta control panel, made a bunch of changes. But one of the things they did for long-term persistence stood out as quite novel and really interesting. Well, and what you're talking about there is they basically added an external identity provider into the Okta config, which could then be used to authenticate any user, right? Like once you've set that up, it's game over. Now you did just say, okay, it's normal. They got super admin, they can reset MFA. But, the super admin account, and I'd confirmed this, the super admin account in Okta, you cannot use it to masquerade as another user. So I, it's all well and good having super admin access, but if you want to you know, access a target user's mailbox or whatever, you would need to re- use that power to reset their creds. And that is going to set off alarm bells when a user comes in and can't actually log in because their creds have been reset. Uh, that's the sort of thing people are going to notice. Whereas if you tell Okta, hey, we're spinning up a um, uh, an external identity trust source and adding it to the configuration and anyone that this IDP says is authenticated is authenticated, guess what? Uh, you can then masquerade as any user without setting off any alarm bells. And that's you know, you're not going to see failed login attempts in your uh, in your logs. You're not going to see a bunch of MFA and cred resets, right? It's 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 not the sort of thing you're going to detect unless you you're looking for it. Exactly, and that's what makes it such a smooth, uh, you know, post compromise activity, either for long term backdoor or for accessing stuff where you know there's sensitive monitoring or users that are going to be aware if their regular access stops working or like if you've got push based MFA or something like they're going to 
spot weird pushes. So, you know, having this kind of capability, a backdoor in the auth system itself, uh, is just super powerful. And it it's not a thing I think we have seen people do with Okta, but... So that's the thing. This is a conversation mm. we've had before a couple yes. of years ago because the attackers in the SolarWinds case, in the SolarWinds campaign, they did exactly the same thing to Azure, right? Yes. They did exactly the same thing. <laughs> and this is information that seems to have fallen out of people's heads because when I mentioned it to you, you were like, oh, what do you mean? No, they did the ADFS you know, thing and, and, and that's true, right? So they got in on-prem went through ADFS and went up into the cloud that way. And that's the part everyone remembers. But what people seem to have forgotten, and it wasn't just you, I've spoken to a bunch of people about this. They all seem to have forgotten that this was the the ultimate victory for the SolarWinds crew as well, which was adding another identity provider to the Azure config. So this is officially like the, I'm, I'm calling it the equivalent of like domain admin victory for cloud right, is when you can actually add a, a, an external IDP and federate it into the to your primary IDP. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. Like this is a, you know, once you pointed this out to me, I started thinking about it, like it makes a whole bunch of sense. We've done similar sorts of things with Kerberos trusts, adding new, uh, you know, inbound trusts for in there, or like I've backdoored radius servers in people's environments to allow backdoor access in the future. Um, so it makes sense to get into the auth system, into the trust route, into a place where you can validate and create auth tokens without needing key material. Um, or without needing you know, user passwords or reset them or anything like that. So it totally makes sense. And it's a great reminder for everybody that, you know, with Federated Auth comes great power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's what we said two years ago. We said, like, you really want to make it hard. And, and you know, I was saying that uh, back then that the providers need to make it really, really hard uh, for you to actually enable this. And maybe that should involve a phone call or something but I mean, there is stuff you can do, okay, uh, short of having to present your super admin to an Okta office for DNA sequencing before they can make this change. <laughs> so there's a bunch of good advice in the, uh, in the Okta blog post. I mean, the primary, um, you know, the primary advice, I think, is don't let your help desk reset the super admin password. But then it comes down to like, and I spoke about this with Brett Winifred, of course, who is at Okta and a former colleague of ours. And I spoke to him about it and I'm like, well, maybe you just need another super admin account that is only used to reset the MFA on the primary super admin account. And it's it's kind of dumb, but it'll work. Because otherwise, otherwise, who, where is that reset going to fall back to? Okta's help desk? And I think Brett's response to that was, oh God, please no. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think people need to think about like, that's the first thing they need to think about is, is what are the processes for resetting MFA on super admin accounts? Because you can't let your help desk handle that. That's just insane. Yeah, like it's too much of a trust anchor and it needs, you know, pretty robust controls around it. And, you know, Okta, I'm sure there's some mechanisms that they've been talking about that, you know, could help facilitate that. But as you say, like requiring the super admin to physically show up and present ID, you know. Present DNA, buddy. DNA yeah, sequencing. Yeah, is, uh, you know, perhaps not practical. And but a 50-page questionnaire. <laughs> yeah, but at the very least, you know, strong alerting so that you can spot it happening in ideally real time and go, hey, we didn't do this. But... You know, it, it, this is a degree of, you know, this requires a degree of understanding of cloud governance that probably isn't super common 
and clearly should be, but this stuff is complicated and is new and is kind of evolving. Like if you set up Okta 10 years ago, well, whoever old Okta is now, you know, thinking back and thinking about all the things you have to worry about now when you built it, it's kind of similar to how AD, you know, became a trash fire because it's complicated and it lasted a long time and a lot of stuff in the world changed around it. And, you know, clearly Okta you know, has some... You know, they could make this easier to spot for their customers. Well, and I'm and sure they, they I'm, probably will. Yeah. I'm sure they will, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I think also, first of all, I should mention that uh, pre, uh, historically, Okta had been a sponsor of this show. They didn't sponsor anything this year, but they are coming back next year. So just a disclaimer there that they are soon to be a sponsor again. Um, I And I, I, I think they deserve a pat on the back for actually publishing this blog post yes, because agreed. a lot of organizations would just sweep this under the rug, right? So I think it's really good that they're raising awareness on this. And this isn't... This is an abuse of, you know, legit functionality, right? So this isn't a weakness in their system per se, but, and they're publishing good advice on here, but yeah, you know, you say, right, that this is something that requires a big detailed knowledge of cloud infra and whatever. I don't see it that way. I see this as a fairly fundamental thing that you use cloud IDPs to do, which is to do federation, right? Federated identity. So it's it's a pretty fundamental, simple thing that attackers are abusing. And it's I just don't think it's as novel as people think it is because we have seen it before and I bet there's a lot more of this happening than we realize. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, auth systems in general are complicated. We've seen the same kind of class of attack against other distributed auth systems. But, I, you know, the terminology and the complexity of federated auth, I think, just scares a lot of people because, you know, it's it does require structured thinking, I guess, about how auth works and who you trust and how those trust systems work and, you know, the threads that you uh, dug up out of the, like, Okta support forums. Oh, that was funny, yeah. So know, uh, let me let me just tell yeah, that tell that story because I, I seriously was just googling around going because I was thinking they have to be doing this so that they don't have to reset people's creds but surely as super yeah. admin you could masquerade right so I, I googled around on that and I found some post from like 2017 in some Okta forum where someone's like you know can I um, log in as other users using super admin and the Okta person answered in the thread and said no as a security measure you can't do that because that would be pretty bad if that account got compromised blah 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 and then some other Okta user just replied and like ah oh, you could probably plumb something through with like SAML <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and as a federated ID or, so, or something like pretty much hit the nail on the head of, of how you would then go about doing this right yeah which is kind of funny because you know that that's a you know, knowing what terms to Google, like to find that particular thread and to understand what's going on like that. I guess that's what I mean. Like there's a bunch of back knowledge that you would need. But once you get there and you're thinking about it right, then yeah, of course it kind of makes sense that you'd be able to do this. And Okta in their blog post describes a couple of circumstances where this kind of inbound trust is really useful. So yeah. in mergers and acquisitions, for example, or other big integration projects. So like all of the pieces of the puzzle make sense, but... I guess they're being combined in a way that uh, only you and the people who've been doing the hack can remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is it is funny, right? Because as I say, it is just something that sort of fell out of people's heads a bit. And, you know, the thing that we said last time, the, the place that we arrived was that you need really strict controls around adding new IDPs and federating yes. other external IDPs and trusting them. So you need really strong controls to prevent that from happening uh, and you need really strong detections for figuring out when that has happened, you know? So I think this is something where it's, it's, it's kind of worth people going away and taking a look at because 
you know, if this happens to you, that's very bad. Yeah, as you say, it's ultimate victory against yes. anything cloud auth. And these days we are building systems where there is one way to do auth everywhere. And if you compromise that one way, you get everything all at once everywhere. But see, uh, that's the thing. The IDPs have have kind of built some protections in. So even if you're super admin, you can't do all of the stuff that you can do with an externally trusted IDP. It's just such a great example of attackers saying, oh, I can't masquerade as any user. Oh, well, I'll just do this instead. Yes. Yeah. It's good. You know. It's good work. You know. Solid. Well, <laughs> it is. It's like this, be you know. the water that flows around the stone in the river, yes, kind of thing, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, people could check out the Okta blog post in this week's uh, show notes, and I'd recommend they do. And let's see. You know, they they are the first to talk about this particular campaign. You know, let's see if anything shakes out of the others, like Microsoft or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know the same logical components exist in every other auth system, so I'm sure we'll see uh, people doing similar things in the others. Well, I mean, it was Microsoft in the case of SolarWinds, but I yes. mean specifically this campaign. Like, let's see if anything oh, yes. else shakes out on this one. <laughs> um, now we're going to have a chat about some malware, Adam, and ESET has a write-up on the bad, bizarre espionage tool. And like this one's hit the headlines over the last few days, so people have probably seen this one already. Uh, but a what looks to be a Chinese espionage crew created like fake third-party uh, apps for Signal and Telegram. I mean, I guess they were real third-party apps for Signal and Telegram, <laughs> but with the added benefit to the people who wrote them of being able to, uh, in the case of the Signal Signal Plus, which they created, that links someone's Signal account through the account linking feature that you use to use Signal on desktop or your iPad or whatever. Uh, it uses that functionality to sort of carbon copy everyone's Signal messages. And the Telegram one does something funky with backups, I think, to be able to access uh, Telegram message content and stuff. And these apps were advertised on forums popular with Uyghur Muslims. And so, you know, we can only guess uh, what this stuff was was being used for. But this is interesting because the, the bad apps managed to get into the Play Store and into the, like, Samsung uh, App Store as well. I think the Telegram one, it's it's kind of a historical thing. Like, I think that one wrapped up a couple of years ago. But, like, thousands of people downloaded it and installed it. The Signal one looks like it was less successful. But what I find interesting about this is it would be very hard to stamp out this type of campaign completely because you would need to ban all third-party apps for tools like Signal and Telegram. Yeah, I mean, the amount of control that would have to be exerted by the app stores to filter this stuff out, uh, you know, seems implausible in the case of Play. Uh, and then, you know, there's always going to be, especially in a community where getting access to those tools is already complicated. So in the case of Uyghur Muslims, like they, maybe they can't just go and get regular mainline signal. They're well, I mean, China, China has historically used this sort of thing to target the Uyghur diaspora, right? So yes. Uyghurs based outside of territory they control. So I think that's more what this is for rather than targeting people in China. Yeah, but I guess like that community is used to having to distribute apps in non-normal, non-standard ways, I guess yeah, is okay. what I meant. Yeah, 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 inside, yeah, yeah. You know, and out. Um, and so like the Signal Plus one uh, had an extra feature, like it will use proxies to automatically connect and stuff that kind of appeal to those communities where they're already being oppressed to some degree. Um, the use of the Signal linking functionality, I think, is pretty novel. I don't know that we've seen that uh, abused in this way before uh, because it's a transparent, like you install this app uh, and then it behind the scenes will do that 
linking process yeah. to get copies of your messages. And so that's kind of interesting and novel. And I think ESET pulled apart like the uh, exact mechanism by which that worked and, and wrote it up on their blog. Um, but yeah, it's a, I mean, I, it's a, it's an approach to targeting those communities that has been unfortunately effective. And as you say, kind of hard to stop as well. Yeah. And I think the, the fact that they were actually advertising and promoting it, you know, this is how you can get people to use an obscure third party app yes. that's, you know, buried in, in, in some app store is you go and you go and spend some money and you promote it, right? And yeah. you're gonna get results. Yeah. I mean the the numbers on the signal, as you say, were not great. There was like a couple of hundred installs, I think, but the telegram one was thousands. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, clearly it was working for them. Yeah, yeah. It is um it is interesting. And you just sort of think, well, how do you how do you stop that? And you know, my initial reaction was, oh, you know, lazy work by these app stores. And I'm thinking, well, having to do such complete analysis of these apps, you know, to see. I mean, a third party app is always going to look suspicious. Really, confirming that one is good is is yeah. is going to be very. It's going to be a lot of work. That's what I'm getting. I at. mean, the the signal one, like if a human looked at it, like to my eye, it looked obviously dodge. Like the you know, the logo looked crappy and the slogan was crappy, but as you say, that's English speak, you know, a native English speaker eyeballing something that I'm already primed primed to think is sus versus you know automated assessment by Google Play's you know kind of gatekeeping process, whatever it is. Yeah, like these are hard problems to solve. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen an example on the iOS uh, store, but I'm guessing the targeted population is Android heavy anyway, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure people have tried to get fake signal apps into the Apple App Store and um, hopefully failed. Uh, but yeah, like this is a hard problem, even you know, with Apple's slightly more aggressive approach to policing it. Now, staying with Android malware, we've got a report out from the Five Eyes agencies uh, about a bit of Russian malware being uh, that is uh, targeting Android phones that they are calling infamous chisel. Yes, this is the one that uh, targeted uh, Android tablets being used by Ukrainian military personnel in the field, uh, and it's you know kind of. Fairly. Oh, so this is the one that I spoke about with Ilya uh, Vitsyuk. Yes, yeah, yes. okay. So this is the one with the the debugger on 5555 or whatever. Yes, for initial entry vector, yes. And then yeah. we'll keep an eye on the you know Starnet, Starlink terminals nearby, uh, as well as you know stealing data from messages and, and whatever else. Uh, the FiveWise write-up has a bunch of details for you know IOCs and details of how it worked. Um, there's a couple of interesting bits in there. One is the use of Tor for C2, which I suppose is pretty common Russian tradecraft. Uh, but you would think Tor traffic coming in over... Uh, you know, the cell network from military tablets would be a thing that, you know, Ilya and friends uh, would be on the lookout for. So a bit of a tell there. Um, and then uh, there's some specific targeting of Ukrainian military apps as well. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the data collected, et cetera, which is you know, kind of what you'd expect uh, from, uh, you know, the GRU targeting Ukrainian military. Yep, yep. So people, uh, I've linked through to the report, people can read uh, that one. But, you know, you just mentioned the Tor thing and uh, you and I both went down this rabbit hole a little bit today when preparing the show because uh, there's a, uh, uh, Dorina Antonyuk uh, over at The Record has written up uh, a fancy bear attempt to disrupt uh, a critical energy facility in Ukraine. What's interesting here, two things jumped out at me about this. First of all, was the use of Tor for C2, right? And we'll talk about that more in, in a little bit. The second thing that jumped out to me is like, what year is this? Because <laughs> the, the way they were trying to spread this malware was with like a, a zip attachment and a body and an email saying, hey, check out all of these nude girls, you know, 
in this zip file and then you open it and one of the files is, I'm not kidding, it's a .bat. So they're using, <laughs> using Windows batch files uh, to drop <laughs> malware. And you know, normally we say it's not dumb if it works. Like even if this works, it's still dumb and I don't like it because it's just, <laughs> I feel like I'm in a time warp. Uh, I did like though that the email lure, uh, whilst being old school in its mechanism, uh, did say that the girls in question consented to having their pictures shared. So that's quite a nice modern development. I well, think. I think that's progress, at least on on yes, some level, progress. right? Where where exactly. we have an expectation that that should be mentioned. So that's yes. good. You know, that's <laughs> good great. job, Russia. Very progressive of you. <laughs> um, but uh, do we have any idea if this campaign was at all successful, Adam? Uh, it sounds like it was successful at you know getting some initial execution, but it you know, seems to have been snapped pretty quickly by uh, the employee in question. Um, so they they figured that something weird was going on, escalated it, uh, and then it was contained. So it looks like you know near miss uh, yeah. for the Ukrainian energy people in question, but still kind of funny that uh, that it did work to a now, certain degree. As I mentioned, you know, you and I started had had a big conversation before we got recording about you know, Russians using Tor. And it seems like this is, as you say, something that they are regularly employing in their tradecraft these days. And you do kind of wonder why. Because Tor is the sort of thing that tends to stand out on the wire. And Ukraine is in a existential war, which means they're going to have the authorities they require to be able to monitor network traffic and look for stuff like this. Why is it you think Russians are using Tor for command and control when correlating, you know, when spotting Tor traffic is is easy? And, and you know, I'm guessing quite rare, you know, Tor traffic is not that common. Yeah, so we had that conversation and I guess I came away from it thinking that, yes, whilst Tor does stand out on a network like direct Russian C2, like straight to the C2 point, probably stands out more. And there is enough doubt in tour traffic, you know, that you'd have to go investigate, I guess. You know, mm. something weird has happened, we don't know what, whereas versus seeing full-on bare C2 over the internet, you know, that's a definite sign of compromise. So maybe there's enough tour traffic sloshing around in Ukraine that it's not as strong an indicator as the alternative, which is straight up bare C2, over the internet and the other options for like domain fronting or hiding inside regular apps are either complicated or problematic. Given well, I would, I would think if I was operating a CDN, I would have a rule, a detection rule that just said, cause CDNs can detect domain fronting, right? Yes. You yeah, can't when it's so. leaving your network, but the CDNs yes. can. And I would think a rule that says any domain fronting activity in the geographical area of Ukraine should be treated as highly suspect and flagged for review, um, you know, would bear fruit. So I can understand why they wouldn't want to go the CDN route uh, with domain fronting at least. The naked C2, I, I get that as well, but it just, I don't know, it just seems like this is such an opportunity for the Ukrainians in particular. Just monitoring for Tor is going to give you such a good starting point to, to spot this C2. And I'm guessing the traffic is going to be quite different from... Uh, browsing traffic as well because I mean I think in the previous case the Android one it spins up a hidden service and then binds SSH to it and that yes yeah that's going to look real funky on the wire you know <laughs> yeah I mean I guess that like you know it may just be that this is the least worst option they've got there's no good options for doing C2 on Ukrainian monitored networks and at least Tor adds enough doubt and maybe enough time delay like if you have to spin up a human to go look at it like maybe that buys you 
an hour or two or, you know, five or whatever. Like maybe mm. it's enough. I don't know how long that's, that's going to last though. I don't well, know, yeah, you know. Yeah. And look, if I'm Ukraine at this point, I'm pretty much just going to drop all tour entry exit um, at core. Like that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that seems like the smart move, but you know, maybe there's other other complexities. I think, you know, if it was my op and you have to go like, what's the least worst option we've got? Maybe tour is it. Yeah, maybe, maybe. All right, now we got a late-breaking story uh, from Brian Krebs. He actually texted me just before uh, we were <laughs> recording to, to make sure we got this in, and I'm glad he did because uh, it's a cracker of a story, real long write-up too. What he's done is he's managed to put forward a very strong but circumstantial case uh, that suggests the people behind the last pass breach – are indeed going after crypto assets. So what it what looks like is happening is a bunch of crypto is being stolen. Like we're looking at about $35 million worth of crypto assets uh, stolen from people who a lot of them were LastPass users and had stored their seed phrases in their LastPass vaults. And now those vaults are apparently being offline cracked and attackers are running away with the money. I mean, it is circumstantial, but you read through this and it is pretty compelling. Yeah, it is pretty compelling. There's uh, some people on, you know, on Twitter X uh, that have been investigating a bunch of these thefts and trying to correlate like how they happen. There's been a few cases where people's wallets have just been emptied with no other apparent reason, and these are people that are otherwise security conscious or members of the bit, like have been in the Bitcoin scene for a while uh, and kind of understand what to do. Um, and through interviews with some of the people who've had their you know, their money stolen, there's a reasonable suggestion that, you know, there's a people who had stored their seed phrase uh, in LastPass, perhaps had a LastPass master key that was in fact crackable given enough time. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, their, their money is gone without any other indicators like having their phone SIM swapped or other things that you would normally see in, in common cryptocurrency theft techniques. Uh, and it does come across pretty compelling because there's such a broad um, set of kind of victimology, I suppose. Like there's, there's, this is one of the common factors that ties together a bunch of otherwise unexplained thefts. Like one of the victims, for example, is an employee of Chainalysis, right, who understands presumably a little bit about cryptocurrency and blockchain and how to, uh, you know, uh, not have their money stolen. Um but I think and stealing like, stealing money from a blockchain investigator is like, you know, a recipe for a bad time, but let's see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I feel like the, the, whoever is doing this, uh, you know, is being pretty bold with their targeting, but hey, maybe they don't know whose money they're stealing even. Um, so anyway, it's interesting because, you know, we hadn't really seen much in the way of fallout from LastPass, you know, other than like reputational for them. Um but in terms of actual victims and actual impact, we hadn't seen much. Uh, and you know, there was a lot of speculation at the time about other non-password things that people stored in their LastPass vaults, like, you know, Wi-Fi creds or whatever else. But, you know, seed phrases for crypto wallets is a pretty natural target. And, you know, whoever is doing this is making good money out of it. So clearly it was a good scheme. Yeah, and of course, you know, this breach at LastPass involved uh, the attackers exploiting a bug in Plex uh, at an engineer's home network. But it looks like, you know, once this money starts moving around, we might even find out who is behind this after all. 
Well, yeah, someone's making big money out of it. So I imagine, and like as you say, if you're going to go after people who work in blockchain currency tracing, yeah, I think there's going to be a few eyes on on those coins. And yeah, you know, if you if you're the person behind this, you may want to think twice about how good your laundering is going to be to get this stuff out. Because yeah, you are the dog that uh, caught the car. Yes, pretty much. Now let's talk about what's going on in Fiji. Uh, Fiji, a wonderful, beautiful country, quite close to uh, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, its telco, its cell network provider, Digicel, has apparently been used uh, by a, or is being used by a bunch of uh, surveillance companies as an entry point into the global SS7 network. And this is, um, you know, a problem for Telstra, which is Australia's sort of formerly state-owned incumbent uh, telecommunications provider, because it bought uh, Digicel, its acquisition closed last year, and it bought Digicel uh, with... $1.9 billion in financing assistance from the Australian government, right? Because (laughs) Fiji, very close to Australia, China, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole other story. But Adam, walk us through the story here. Yeah, so uh, some analysis from Citizen Lab has been looking at uh, requests made into the SS7 network to locate individual subscribers. So uh, if you're on the network, you can query the kind of global network about where a phone is to facilitate things like roaming and message delivery. Uh, and uh, to do that, you have to be on the SS7 network. And um, uh, telcos, some telcos will lease you that access. So you have to have uh, what's called a global title. You don't necessarily have to use them through their network, uh, but in some cases, uh, it looks like the queries were not originating from Digicel, even though they were using Digicel um, associated global title addresses. Um, there's also the option that you can just bust into the telco and help yourself um, yeah. and use their network and their services and their addresses, you know, without necessarily having their cooperation. Um, both are quite feasible we're not sure which it is in this case well uh, that um, that that's the thing like we don't really know do we whether or not this is a case of bad governance corruption bad business practices or bad security like we just know that this is a problem we don't really know what is causing it yeah so i think telstra had said that uh, they had shut down a number of uh, global title leases that were either sus or you know the business bits of it didn't quite work right or whatever um but it's not that's not to say that it was exclusively that um like i know other you know phone freak types uh, who have illicitly used global titles from telcos before in the past so like i figure it's probably both uh, and you know since telstra bought the place probably they have been trying to clean house but citizen lab certainly has some criticisms about how fast that process has been happening yeah yeah, well, fun times for people at Telstra trying to deal with all that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's hope the Australian government's money covers all of the work required to make it uh, fit for purpose. <laughs> I think it is amazing, isn't it, that you can correlate SS7 location queries with murders. Yes. Like you know, like if you, what, what if you had world. any doubt left in your mind that some of these surveillance people just belong in the bin, you yes. know. The fact that it's like journalist, uh, journalist phone number was located via SS7. Oh, two hours later they were murdered. Yeah, this is not great. And and the number, like the scale of this is pretty large. Um, I think they said, what, last October, 9,000 queries uh, for location information, right? So that's, you know, that's quite a scale of operation. Like it's not one or two. Yeah. Um, This is, you know, industrial sort of scale uh, monitoring and surveillance and interception. Yeah, I linked through to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's write-up on this, and this comes from their Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. And uh, look, got to say, for something quite technical, they did a hell of a job. Like, very, very nice reporting there. Yeah, it was a great write-up. 
Yeah. All right. Now we're going to talk about a John Grigg piece about a CISA, a CISA initiative. They're working with MITRE to spin up um, uh, an attack emulation platform for OT networks. Now, okay, fair enough. Not huge news. Um, but funnily enough, in debating whether or not to include this piece today, Adam, we wound up having a really interesting conversation about attack <laughs> emulation. So let's use this piece to have that conversation. I'm a big believer in attack emulation, I think that, you know, that there are open source tools like Atomic Red Team. There are some of the commercial providers like Attack IQ who have previously sponsored Risky Biz and have been in the business for a long time. Um, I'm a fan. It took a long time for people to realize that these types of activities could be useful. But honestly, I think before people go absolutely ape with things like Red Teams and pen testing, doing some emulation you know, attacker emulation on your network is just a really great way to see if you've got your ducks in a row. And astonishingly, Mr. Pen Bearded Pentester over here, you actually agreed with me on that. Yeah, it's taken a while for me to kind of come around to where this stuff fits in the overall offering. And, you know, part of that is because, you know, we used to do this stuff by hand as Red Teamers back in the day before this was easily automatable. Uh, and we wanted to think that we were magical and added value. Um, <laughs> where, you know, the reality these days is a lot of these techniques are, you know, exercising a full breadth of them is more useful than a depth first human led red team for you know managing detection and response and i think in ot environments particularly like having a human wandering around is even more problematic just because you know you could mess things up pretty good mm. um and so yeah i think you know the value of a human led red team in a trad ad environment these days is not super high like it makes more sense to expend the money and effort going for breadth because all the techniques are well understood and automatable and don't necessarily require human insight. And I think it is a better return on investment than letting a human run around and do one thing. So, yep. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it just really is the case that if you're going through an emulation exercise and you fail something big, that is extremely valuable information. Yes. You know, you might say like, and this is for people who already have security controls, already have detections. Like if you don't have those in place, there's no point doing emulation. But if you do have a security program, if you are trying to detect things, if you are trying to block things, this is a good way to just really see if the stuff that you think works, works, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I just, I, I have been a believer in it early. Um, and it is satisfying to see a technology that, you know, because when Attack IQ started doing this commercially, it was kind of new, and it and it, and it always seemed like a good idea. So I'm I'm glad to see that it's it's getting somewhere, and I'm glad to see CISA doing this with Mitre. Yeah, this is uh, Mitre has this Caldera open source tool, and this uh, development adds uh, support for BACnet, Modbus, and DMP3 industrial protocols into it. So then you can kind of write test cases that exercise like reading Modbus coils, for example, and be able to do so in a way where you can order it in advance rather than letting a human YOLO it live and prod definitely you know, provides a bunch of value for those kinds of environments. Yeah. Uh, now let's talk about Logic Monitor. Uh, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just tell us about this story, Adam. I'm not even going to bother introing it. <laughs> uh, so Logic Monitor are a company that provide like a cloud-based monitoring service and, and you know, availability and statistics collection and those kinds of things uh, and necessarily have quite detailed access to people's cloud environments to be able to collect that data. 
there's been a tech campaign going around that abuses the fact that Logic Monitor give their customers a default password that's, uh, you know, like, welcome at some numbers kind of thing. So, like, normal corporate help desk grade uh, default password that then doesn't expire or require a change. And so someone has figured that out, presumably brute forced a bunch of accounts uh, versus, you know, some default passwords, and then used that to pivot onwards uh, into the cloud environments that they're monitoring, which, like, that's some sad trombone right there. Well, and they dropped ransomware, the attackers. Like, so this wasn't like some kids dropping some crypto miners. Like, people got wrecked because of this. And look, I mean, I think you can sort of equally split the blame here between the provider and the and the users, uh, yes. but... Geez, you know, it just shows you, you know, you're using a monitoring tool that probably has over-provisioned access and an extremely weak auth mechanism and that's it, you're done, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, it kind of warms my heart in a way that we can still make such babby infosec mistakes uh, in this year 2023 AD, but uh, not great for the customers, obviously. Now, we've got a bit of a follow-up, uh, more of a follow-up on the Barracuda O'Day drama. This is the one where, of course, a Chinese APT crew hacked into a bunch of Barracudas and then went, I think it was, what, Mandiant and Barracuda working together, tried to evict them, and they just dug in so deep into the firmware that Barracuda said, yeah, you're going to have to throw away those devices. <laughs> um, turns out also some of these patches, uh, it was pretty easy for the attackers. Uh, you know, there, were, there was O'Day involved, uh, but once they were patched, like it, it turns out that the attackers were able to sidestep those patches uh, pretty easily. So for the 5% or so of Barracuda email security gateways that were affected in this campaign, yeah, even if you patched in time, it probably didn't do you much good. Yeah, there's certainly a, you know, a number of things went wrong in this response process, like patches that were incomplete and that didn't provide the prevention required. Uh, and then the advice that they had been giving about junking the devices, you know, junking the, the gateways uh, rather than upgrading them or patching them in place. Uh, you know, you and I both assumed this was probably because of firmware malware. It sounds like uh, from this write-up that they were... Uh, the Chinese were persisting through the device configuration backup and restore process. So if you were going to, to replace the device, you would probably export the config using the config export, which was actually like a, a, like a MySQL database dump. And then they were persisting by adding triggers into the database that they would be executed when it's loaded into the updated device. So I think rather than necessarily, there may have been firmware as well, we don't know, uh, but that kind of mechanism of... of looking at the obvious thing an admin is going to do and then backdooring that was just like, my hat is off. Good job. That's, uh, <laughs> so, that's but is this, is this why they said the patches don't work? Because there was a persistence mechanism that would persist through the, that config file? Or are they saying the patches didn't work because the patches didn't work? I think, uh, I think there's a degree of both here, right? The, the actual initial entry vector patches didn't work. And then the process for upgrading them in the field also had a persistence mechanism that would survive across that. And even if you've got a new device and migrated it across using uh, the backup and restore process, it might have survived that as well. Yeah. So like just very smooth. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm impressed. <laughs> and I wish I had done that to somebody's device once because that would have been a good story. Yeah, it looks like the target selection was pretty bang on too. Like the crew that did this didn't just own every Barracuda like we thought that they may have. Um, they went after about 5% of the total number out there and they were all what looked to be pretty valid in, you know, collection targets, let's put it yeah. that way. And they were using different post-compromise malware depending on the importance of the target. So there was like a special one that they were, you know, um, reserving for tech and government and then other people, you know, boring people like defence and military and 
telecoms providers got the lower grade one, <laughs> which I thought was that's a good way to kind of split your, like, you know, you're going to get snapped. Like it, by splitting it into a couple of pools of victims, then maybe you can survive longer and you can deploy more safely these crazy techniques yep. uh, to keep persistence where you really, really want it. So, yeah. Uh, we've got another one from Brian Krebs here, uh, which is just a look at the .us domain and how much it's <laughs> used for phishing. And the funny, <laughs> the funny part, I guess, I mean, we don't really need to spend much time on this, but the funny part of this is that the .us domain is supposed to be for like US citizens only. And, you know, you go to register one through... GoDaddy and like proving you're a US citizen is a matter of like selecting I am a US citizen from a drop down menu and then pressing go. Yeah. And in fact, it's, it, that is the default selection. So if you just next, 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 uh, you get yourself a US domain. Good job, GoDaddy. Good job. <laughs> but I mean, what do we expect? You know, like <laughs> well, are they gonna, yeah, I mean, you know, they're going to ask for birth certificates or, you know. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> and even then, like that's, that's five minutes in Photoshop. So I don't know. It's just, yeah. I think it is a bit quaint to expect that you can have affordable domain registrations that are also going to be robust, robustly yes. verifying people's citizenship. You know, just yeah, what do we yeah. expect? Yeah, if you don't exactly. want them to cost two and a half grand each, this is what it's going to look like. Yeah, exactly. And if, and if you will outsource it all to GoDaddy, then, you know, <laughs> you don't necessarily get the good stuff. Yeah. Now, Alexander Martin over at The Record uh, has a write-up on this, um, but Ollie Whitehouse has been appointed as the NCSC's first ever CTO, and I just wanted to say congratulations to Ollie. Uh, for a while, he was uh, you know, more or less an honorary Australian. He lived in uh, Melbourne uh, for quite a while, and uh, you know, you'd run into him at uh, conferences like RuxCon and whatnot. Um, I still remember his amazing you know, Bluetooth security research from 20 years ago, and, and so much research. Uh, Ollie is just one of those really smart people who's been kicking around in cybersecurity uh, for as long as I can remember and it's great to see him going into a, into a role like this. Yeah, no, this is exactly the sort of person that we would like to see rescued out of the private sector and back into <laughs> a lowly paid role in government where perhaps you could make some change and do some things that, you know, being a yacht-dwelling, you know, private sector CTO, uh, you know, you can't do. So yeah. good for him. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's great that he's doing this as well. And I, I'm curious to see what comes out of NCSC, uh, out of, you know, from the mind of Ollie Whitehouse into public policy. Let's see yeah. uh, how that goes. <laughs> oh, and we got to correct something from last week. We were joking that uh, when we're talking about Kroll, um, having one of its employees sim swapped, and then I'm like, well, this sort of thing happens to the, you know, the big four consultancies as well, even though they do good cyber work. Um, and you said PwC got domain admin. Pretty sure that was Deloitte. And that PwC, we got that mixed up with PwC getting moveted. Uh, yes, and then yeah. a couple of PwC people were salty uh, at you saying <laughs> we didn't get domain admin guy. Yeah, not, not this time. So that's good. Um, yeah. yeah, it's very easy to mix up all of the move it victims. So my apologies to uh, PwC there. Yeah, you lost your data a different way. Uh, yes. But, you know, the point, <laughs> still, the, <laughs> the point still kind of stands, right? Which is that uh, you can have organizations that do really good security work that have other divisions that, you know, aren't as secure as they should be. Yes, yeah, it's, it's real hard problems to solve. Uh, just going to mention this, the United Nations uh, Commissioner of Human Rights has put out a report into uh, human trafficking into these pig, pig butchering uh, call centres in Southeast Asia. This is turning into a real issue. Uh, Catalan Kimpanu had a write-up uh, in today's newsletter about a raid on a call centre in Myanmar. Uh, that was a joint operation between Chinese and, and Myanmar police. And funnily enough, they, they arrested like 168 uh, Chinese people as part of that. And the Chinese cops like seriously just put them on a bus to, on buses to send it back over into China to face trial. So they're having a bad day. But 
you know, this is just amazing, isn't it? That there's this human trafficking slash online crime slash call center nexus at the moment. Yeah, it's pretty scary too when you think, you know, some of these people have had their like families threatened or kidnapped or whatever else to force them to work uh, in these call centers. And I guess like the, the, uh, a lot of these seem to be run by mainland Chinese gangs uh, and are targeting victims in China, which I think is one of the reasons that uh, you know we've seen the Chinese police cooperating with you know the authorities in Myanmar, etc., to raid these call centers. And there's been a bunch of other work for like in Cambodia and Laos. Uh, well, we saw we saw a similar of sort of compound raided in the Philippines yes. a month or two ago. So uh, Tom Yuen is taking a look at this uh, as an issue, and that'll be out in uh, tomorrow's seriously risky business newsletter. And subsequent to that, I have a discussion with him about his newsletter that goes out in the um, seriously risky business podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed, our other RSS feed that you should all be subscribing to. Uh, And finally, Adam, uh, we just wanted to link to a long read uh, for people who might be interested uh, in this week's show notes. And it's a piece from Matt Burgess over at Wired, all about TrickBot. Yes, there was a while back, uh, TrickBot, someone broke in and stole all of their like message logs and a bunch of other data. Uh, And of course, you know, there's so much interesting work to be done when you've got a corpus of data like that uh, and why I've spent the time to dig in and provide lots of juicy details about the you know day-to-day lives of being a TrickBot operator. Yeah, it's just a fun read, so we thought we'd yeah. link to that one. But, mate, that is it for the week's news. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, great fun as always, and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I will talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Mark Jow, Gigamon's EMEA uh, Technical Director. And we're going to talk about two things in this interview. The first is how Gigamon got out of the NDR business and is now just focusing on being a source of network data that other security companies and teams can consume. Uh, And then we're going to briefly talk about a new product Gigamon has coming out next week. Uh, Gigamon was one of the first companies to do break and inspect SSL interception gear. uh, And they've got a new cloud-focused product that basically does the same thing in the other direction. Uh, In essence, it's an SSL terminator for cloud environments. You can drop it in and then get decent visibility uh, behind it in your clouds. So here is Mark Jow. We divested the Threat Insight product, which obviously we we bought originally as, as Iceberg. And what we've seen since then is an increasing amount of proactive approaches to Gigamon from a lot of the security, the SOC, SIM providers to help them in two areas. Firstly, reduce the overall volume of traffic that they're having to consume and absorb and to help but the end customers obviously reduce the number of instances of, of tools that they, that they need for that. But also, um, we're working with quite a lot of the vendors and we've got, you know, you know, validated technical designs and integration solutions already available with those vendors that identify the specific application data, application metadata um, that they need in order to get most value from the least amount of data. So effectively, we're giving them high fidelity data by giving them the right attributes using our application metadata uh, capability, but without overburdening them with too much information that they, that they can't use. So we're looking, we work with organizations like Splunk, we've got collaboration with things like IBM Key Radar and others. Um, but increasingly, uh, if you look at some of the OT space, for example, there's a huge amount of collaboration because obviously OT is a is an, ex, an area of, of, of concern for a lot of organizations because there are a lot of OT devices and sometimes they're not always secured in the ways that other enterprise IT, IT devices are possible to secure. 
So a lot of what we're doing at the moment is integrating tightly and working jointly, meeting out the customer with companies like Forescout and Clarity and Nozomi to help give them exactly the right volume of data and the right data attributes to help inform the use cases that turn their good products into exceptional products that are costing the end customers a fortune because Abbott having to have multiple instances of those particular tools. And if you look at the um, the service provider space, for example, one of the things we've been good at for many years and we're getting even better at is um, reducing the number of different probes and different tools that service providers need to cope with the massive volumes of data that come from their from their networks. And obviously, five G that's going to that's going to in- increase even more rapidly. And we're starting now to help. Well, yeah, I mean, you had 5G and every single gajillion, you know, every single one of those gajillion IoT devices is going to be connected through it. So if you're a telco, you need to do some crunching, yeah. Exactly. You've got to you've got to be able to cope with all the data, but then be able to filter out just the specific valuable attributes and capabilities, sometimes, sometimes after correlation between user and control plane, sometimes it's just extracting from the user plane of data exactly the individual applications and the the attributes that are needed to inform particular use cases and those use cases might be okay which devices can i can i on a 3g network and will tell me my impact if i want to switch off my 3g network to save money which of these devices are using uh, different types of data services on 5g so i can identify and market those organizations to sell them new products or services, for example. So they can only do that if they have a capability, both in cloud and in the physical network, to just give them the rich data they need when they need it, rather than having their existing probes choking on terabits of information, yeah. um, which they would never be able to keep up with. And even if they could, they'd have to buy not tens, but hundreds of copies of these probes and the infrastructure to run them on in order to in order to do that 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 same analysis, and that's where that's where Gigabon bring, brings a, a big value capability into into SPs in particular. I mean, it certainly feels like when it comes to network security stuff, it used to be you know security companies that would have their own network sensors and they would do deep packet inspection and, and have signatures and some heuristics, and they were big clunky stacks that didn't work all that well. Which is probably yeah. why they're not you know so much the hot thing these days. The hot thing these days seems to be what you're talking about, which is handling huge volumes of data and just stripping it for the bare essentials. I mean, just hearing you talk about it, I'm reminded of like. Uh, Corelight, which I'm guessing these days is a competitor of yours when it comes to this type of uh, type of information, or being being a source of this type of information. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Interesting because it's it's there are a lot of organisations out there that there are some obviously direct competitors to to what we do, and there are some what I will call cooperators in the fact that some elements of the portfolio or our portfolio might overlap or be competitive to theirs, but in lots of other areas we are complementary. You know, you'd include you know, organizations like Cisco and Palo Alto and some of that, for example, whereas the organizations that are probably slightly more competitive, you know, might be, you know, might be organizations like Ixi or others. But in the vast majority of cases, I would say we are wholly complementary to what over 200 different tools vendors, whether that's in the network traffic space, application metadata, network intelligence, or SOC space, we're the Switzerland, in effect, of giving them high quality, high fidelity data. 
But I mean, this is what I'm saying. Like, this is the way where now we have, you know, anyone doing network stuff these days is treating themselves as a source of data rather than an entire security stack. Like, you know, internet security systems 20 years ago, don't know if you remember them, uh, got sold to IBM and taken out to the back paddock and shot in the head, thankfully. Uh, But, um, you know, it just seems that these days you're either a data source or you're doing data analytics, right? You're not doing both so much. Yeah, exactly. If you look, if you look rudimentary level of what we do with the data, we enable our customers to access it by tapping it, aggregating it, either physically or virtually. We help transform and enrich that data, and then we broker it out to the applications and services that need that information. So they spend less time and less customer money getting maximum value from it. And in a security use case in particular, one of the reasons that a lot of the 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 typically the SOC vendors and the top tool vendors are coming to us is is if you, if you look at logs and metrics, particularly logs, logs are, are mutable in that increasingly a number of the more refined and intelligent actors are identifying ways to get access to logs, to copy them, to manipulate them. So the logs are actually mutable. The network data and the network traffic data isn't. It's completely immutable. So the network will tell you what the host is doing, Whereas well, I mean, the but this is this is tell you what the host tells you it's doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why we still bother, right? With network is, exactly. and I've heard a bunch of people say it's ground truth, right? I think that might have been originally one of the iceberg people who said that, and then I've heard it from other similar uh, similar vendors. But network data, uh, yeah, certainly uh, certainly is is ground truth. So, uh, how are you actually collecting this data? Do you have specific like for on prem? Is this just yeah. like an additional bit of software that goes onto Gigamon networking products, or do you need to add new hardware? Um, I mean, I, I imagine for the cloud, it's just a VM, right? You can instrument it that way if you want to start capturing network data from cloud. Uh, but when it comes to on prem, is it additional hardware, or is it just uh, you know you buy like a software module from Gigamon and spin it up? Yeah, so so in terms of the on-premise as a physical network stuff, we would have physical taps that tap into the network at various key points. Yeah, I just I just wondered if you could if you could just tap your existing Gigamon gear, uh, you know, without deploying new hardware. Well, the 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 way of actually gathering the traffic in the first place in a in a physical network is we have to do a physical tap of the net of the network. But once we've got once we've got that data, we can send that straight to the Gigamon visibility node that in the physical environment is a hardware device that has all the advanced software to filter and enrich and transform. In a cloud environment, um, our V-series solution, which effectively is a VM-based Gigamon equivalent, is effectively the aggregate of the tap, the aggregator, and the visibility node in one piece of virtual software. And it uses whatever the native methods are within the cloud environment to get access to the traffic. And that might be NSXT in a VMware environment. It might be VPC in Amazon. In Azure at the moment, um, we would have to deploy uh, virtual taps to within the environment because at the moment, Microsoft's not yet able to deliver an equivalent to us that enable us to capture the traffic as elegantly without yeah. agent as AWS does with VPC, for example. They've but been they've been having trouble with that for years. They they, they years. have, and, and as soon as they as soon as they solve that problem, we'll be <clears throat> we'll be on that straight away with a solution that exploits that and uses it. Um, but again, it is something that that is is almost like one of those free beer tomorrow type scenarios where you know they keep saying they'll do it, and then there are complexities, and I, I believe it will come eventually, but. I wouldn't even want to put an estimate on when that's going to be. 
Now, Mark, I understand also, you know, you were an early vendor on the break and inspect uh, SSL uh, interception stuff, uh, you know, on, 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 on-prem, you know, IT networks. I believe you're now, well, you're soon to release uh, essentially a reverse version of the same thing, uh, which is an SSL terminator, uh, in essence, for cloud environments. That's right, yeah? Yes, it's, it's a means of giving our customers access to uh, encrypted traffic in the clear when and if they need it within cloud environments, GCP, AWS, Azure, container environments. Yep, so you deploy as a VM and then you're handling all of the SSL termination and then feeding that uh, that traffic back to wherever it needs to go. In yeah, the exactly. Yeah. And the important thing is because that we understand and we have to respect that that traffic that's fed is in the clear for where customers want to, you know, want, want to have that decrypted access, we're able to feed that in a secure way using secure tunnels. So we don't want that information Flying freely in a in a decrypted state around, but we can we can pass that to whichever tools. Well, no, I mean I, I can't imagine you writing it into text files and then batch emailing <laughs> it. Um, yeah, so I, I I would expect that would be tunneled out some way uh, yeah. securely. Uh, when's that coming out? Uh, that it will be due for release on the twelfth of September. Alrighty, well, Mark Jow, thank you so much for joining me to uh, talk through all of that. Uh, great stuff, mate. Uh, good to meet you, and uh, all the best. Thanks, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Mark Jow of Gigamon there with this week's sponsor interview. Big thanks to him for that. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.